Hey gang, it's Jesse. We're getting close to the end of the year, a time to think about what we're thankful for, a time to share joy and give back. Let's be honest, 2020 has been a challenging year for all of us. Public radio stations are no exception. During this time, please consider supporting your local public radio station. Every day they bring you the news you need to know, election coverage, the pandemic, everything else. They also bring you shows like Bullseye. We're incredibly grateful for that. Show your gratitude and support your local member station now. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye and give whatever you can. And thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ani DeFranco moved out of her mom's house at 15 years old. She'd been writing songs for a year. As an up-and-coming singer-songwriter, she played house shows, cafes, slept on couches and floors. She also started her own record label, Righteous Babe. She released her own music through it, as well as work from Andrew Bird, Ardo Lindsay, and Sarah Lee. Around Ani DeFranco, there's a huge, passionate fan base. She sold millions of records, hit a bunch of top 100 charts, won awards and acclaim from critics. But maybe more than any other singer, Ani DeFranco is defined by her independence. When we talked in 2017, though, she'd just released an album that departed from that a bit. She collaborated with a big, diverse roster of artists. Justin Vernon from Bon Iver, Maceo Parker, Gail Ann Dorsey, Binary, which is what she called it, is an album about relationships, about coexistence, about the connections out there between all of us. Here's a single from that album. It's called Play God. Ani DeFranco, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks. So how much do you tour these days as a person who once essentially lived on the road? Yeah, I know. It's it's looking like very little compared to life up till now. I just took six months off the road to be a mom and back up my fella. He was starting to spin out, <laughs> holding down the fort. Um, so yeah, that kind of thing never happened in my 20s and 30s. But now, you know, I do two or three tours in the spring, two or three in the fall, sometimes a festival or two in the summer. It's a pretty, you know, reasonable pace. Just try to balance between, you know, being there for my kids and paying the bills. How old were you when you started playing music professionally? Hmm, professionally. Hmm. Like, uh, I mean, I started playing gigs when I was nine. I befriended a fellow who was in his 30s, and he was a 
folk singer about town in Buffalo, New York, and I just became his sidekick. He was kind of a rough character, and I think a, a you know, a pippy longstocking as a sidekick served him well. And I was thrilled to be out in bars and sort of, uh, you know, seeing the world through his eyes, you know, the eyes of a singer, songwriter, troubadour. And so, yeah, I mean, single digits, I started learning my craft. I mean, when I was a teenager, I started getting my own gigs in Buffalo, and it kind of went from there. I mean, I remember thinking one night when I was a teenager, I had just had a fight with my boyfriend, and I was crying, and I was distraught, and I went up on stage, which maybe wasn't even a stage, at the Essex Street Pub, and I played a set of music, and I, and I put my emotional drama down, and I did my job. I was probably 16, and I thought, that night, I'm a professional. You know, I, I found a way to do my job no matter what. And that's what you do. You just make a show no matter what the goddess gives you on that night. Yeah, there's a saying in theater that you wipe your feet at the door. Right. There you go. That's a professional. I mean, uh, probably a lot of people wouldn't have considered me a professional for many more years to come. But <laughs> What did audiences think about the fact that uh, there was a nine-year-old on stage? Well, you know, this is pre, you know, drunk driving awareness and therefore, you know, the sort of crackdown on underage people in uh, places with alcohol. So, yeah, I was I was a kid hanging out in bars in the 70s. Well, I guess it's 80. Yeah, 70s, 80s in Buffalo. And, um, you know, even even as a teenager, when I started getting my own gigs in bars, you know, it was kind of just under the radar. You know, the club owners, they knew I wasn't going to drink. I wasn't going to tell anybody my age. I was just kind of passing in the adult world. I, I knew the game already. So, you know, it was an era where that was possible. That was right around the time your folks split up, right? Like nine or ten? Yep, yep. And, uh... Yeah, my parents were kind of embroiled in their uh, implosion, and I just sort of ducked out. And I was always a really self-sufficient kid. Um, I had a brother who was more troubled and took more focus from my parents, so the fact that I just got good grades, didn't get in trouble, I was on my own, and it was great. When you say you were passing in the adult world, I mean... To some extent, by the time you were a teenager, you were passing almost entirely in the adult yep. world, right? I mean, not just when you were in a club playing, but through the rest of your life. Right, yeah. I actually, my mom, I ended up living in, with my mom in an apartment, and then she bailed and went to Connecticut. And I tried on small-town Connecticut life for like three minutes, and I said, nah. And I went back to Buffalo at 15. I, I struck out on my own. So, And, you know, I was not legally emancipated. So I everything I did from then on was illegal. You know, my jobs, my apartments. I had to charm the various adults of the world into believing in me and taking a risk and giving me an apartment and a job. and Were you scared to do that or excited to do that? I was excited. I came from an uh, unhappy house. 
you know, my family. So the freedom of, of you know, of being self-directed, of being on my own. And I, I felt like I was choosing happiness, you know. I, I just wanted to go and be happy and not be involved in all that unnecessary sadness and strife. So I was thrilled to be on my own. You know, I thought of myself as a self-sufficient kid when I was a kid and, you know, grew up with uh, divorced parents in the city. And Mm. I don't think it was till I was an adult that I really realized the extent to which what I saw as self-sufficiency was in part a kind of distrust of others and unwillingness to let them help me. Mm. And I wonder if you notice that in your life, especially in your young life, that when, you, when you're that young and you kind of make your own way so much, rely on yourself so much, that it, it, it can sometimes be hard to rely on others. I, 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 I get what you're spraying totally. In fact, it's funny. Recently, I just, you know, I just put out this record called Binary. And I'm doing these interviews and I'm talking to people about my deep thoughts about <laughs> the binary universe that we live in and how everything is a relationship. Nothing. There's no such thing as a singularity or an individual. We only exist in relationship to each other. I mean, it's it's quantum physics and it's uh, the emotional reality. It's the physical design, as far as I know it, of our universe. And I was talking to a, a fellow from Italy the other day because I'm about to go to Europe. And he said, but your 800 number is 1-800-ON-HER-OWN. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, right. You know, I spent a lot of years believing I was on my own and um, I kind of am famous for it in a way uh, even above and beyond my art often which has kind of been a bummer and looking back which I have been lately I'm writing a memoir in addition to just getting old (laughs) and you know, one of the things I realized more and more is that I was never on my own. You know, even as an emancipated kid, I had Michael by my side. I had so many people at every phase of my life that helped me. I This new record that I made, I have all these amazing collaborators from the musicians who played on it to my husband who recorded it to Chad Blake who mixed it. And they all contributed so much. And I believe... Uh, help translate these new songs, this new group of songs, so much more than on many, many of my records that I did on my own, you know. And now when I look over my life, I I realize I much prefer community, relationship, unity, not, 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 I, I hope I'm never solitary again. How did that, on my own spirit when you were a young woman of affect your life like when you were a teenager and in your early 20s well like you say it was my life that that created that spirit i mean i kind of had to be it was out of necessity that i was self-sufficient as a kid and then you you move into your young adult life and you do what you know you know before you deconstruct it and reconstruct yourself um 
So I think, you know, my instinct was just, uh, you know, when I started playing music as a job, I, I, my instinct was, I don't need a record company. I just make a record and I'll just sell it to the people who want it. And, um, you know, I don't need this and that and the other. I, I can, you know, I can produce my own record. There it is. Bada bing, you know, and just uh, I was carrying my I got this um, spirit into my work. And I think it got me, you know, it got me a ways. But then, you know, looking back, I wish now that I had let other people in sooner, that I had trusted and, uh, you know, branched out from that sort of fearful, emancipated child. Because uh, I think that would have helped my art. It would have helped me to grow in ways that I didn't on my own. We'll have more with Ani DeFranco after a break. Still on the docket, that time Ani jammed with Prince. I mean, can you imagine Prince asking you to, like, just come over? It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room. Collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com Teams. Since the 1980s, hip-hop and America's prisons have grown side by side. And we're going to investigate this connection to see how it lifts us up and holds us down. Hip-hop is talking about what we live, trying to live the American dream, failing at the American dream. I'm Sydney Madden. I'm Rodney Carmichael. Listen now to the Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music. Where we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. Does our podcast deep dive into the weirdest Wikipedia pages we can find? Yes. Do we learn about scam artists, remote islands, horrible mascots, beautiful diseases, and mythical monsters? Yes, 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 absolutely, and yes. Do we retain any of this knowledge? Eh, probably not. I'm Emily Heller. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. We make art and comedy and TV shows and also the podcast Baby Geniuses. For the past eight years, we've been trying to learn new things about the world and each other every episode. But let's be honest, this podcast is mostly about two friends hanging out, shooting the breeze, and making each other laugh. We're horny, we like gardening and horses, and we get real stupid on here. But like, in a smart way. Yeah. Join us every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, tell us something we don't know. Hey all, it's Jesse again with a reminder that now the end of the year is a great time to support your local NPR member station. Do it now. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye. And thanks. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening back to my 2017 conversation with the singer-songwriter Ani DeFranco. She just announced she has a new album, her 22nd. It's called Revolutionary Love, and it's coming out this January. Here's a single from the new record. It's called Contagious.
my uh my friend John Darnell, who's in a band called the Mountain Goats, or he sort of is a band called the Mountain Goats, he's been a complaining lately about doing press for his new album and people asking him about everything other than his art. Mm. And so uh, he happened to have commented that I, I had posted that I was going to be interviewing you today. And he, he mm-hmm. commented that he thought a song that you wrote called Hypnotized uh, was a genuine masterpiece. And so I thought we would take a listen to it and maybe talk about it a little bit. So that's how you found me Rain falling around me Looking down at a world With a long way to go And the traffic was hissing by and I was homesick and I was high And I was surrounded By language In which I could say only hello Thank you very much, but you spoke so I could understand. And I drew a treasure map on your hand. And you were no picnic, and you were no prize. But you had just enough pathos to keep me hypnotized. hypnotized. When you write in the first person, are you usually writing about yourself? Yes and no. I mean, what is myself? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. We're going to go full NPR on it. (laughs) Thanks. I mean, I guess technically I often am writing about myself, but I might have conflated myself with someone else. Or I might just be really writing from another point of view, but I find the first person... Uh, I like the immediacy of it. I'm writing I'm writing from what I know, you know, and it's some of it I lived and some of it people very near and dear to me lived. Do you like to write beautiful songs? Oh yeah. I mean, that's the most uplifting feeling. You know, especially you know, a lot of my art and I think art in general comes from struggle, you know comes from pain and when you take your pain and you turn it into something beautiful and useful it's like that's other than my kids that's my deepest joy I've I've ever known I read a really interesting interview that you did in now now more than 20 years ago I think it was mid 1990s and one of the things that you were talking about was how much of yourself you lay out on stage um, and the way that you relate to audiences on stage. And essentially you said that the thing that kind of powered you through a performance was looking into the eyes of the mm. people for whom you were mm-hmm. performing. And I think that is a fair description of, you know, what you were doing on your records too like you were really looking into the eyes of your audience in a way that few few musical artists uh are are interested in or willing to whatever the case may be do mm-hmm. and i wonder if that became more difficult as 
you kind of had the twin situations of getting more famous and becoming more of an adult, getting older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do feel like that did become more difficult. I mean, literally, the obsessive eye contact <laughs> and figuratively the obsessive engagement with others and exposure it all tends to compound and become exhausting I think also there was an element to it when I was young that was kind of aggressive you know I was aggressive about no look at me (laughs) you and I would I wouldn't stop until I had everyone in the room engaged fully. And, you know, I would just sort of approach my audiences with a mental bullwhip. And 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 now uh, I feel, uh, once again, like because I'm in a safer, more empowered place, I have an opportunity to be more gentle, you know, with my ideas, with my art. Um you know, with my eye contact. Um, I feel like I sort of took a page from my mother's book when I was young, and she was a very engaging person and a a strong feminist and, you know, an architect when there were no women architects. and, And my father was very gentle. He was very passive. He was very kind. Uh, and quiet. And I feel, as I get older, I feel like I am on this sort of trajectory from my mother to my father. And now I like to engage with people um, in a more gentle way, you know. And I think I, I mean, I hope that after empowering my tribe and connecting, you know, and finding my chosen family that uh, now my new challenge is building more bridges, you know, trying to connect with those outside of that tribe, trying to speak uh, a progressive idea to a conservative person, for instance, and have it be heard. You know, that that's my new dream. Let's hear some more music from my guest, Ani DeFranco. She has a new album called Binary. Um, this is the most recent single, which features Justin Vernon. It's called Zizzing. Air flush with water. Skin slick with oil. Power poles zizzing in the fog like Tesla coils. Sweeping
how do you decide when somebody gets to be a guest on an Ani DeFranco album? Um, when they call me back. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you call? Did you call Justin Vernon? He's he is probably best known for folks who don't immediately recognize his name for his uh, band or pseudonym or something along those lines. Bon Iver. Yeah, his handle. Yeah. Brilliant to have a handle. Should have thought of it a long time ago myself. A little separation. Um, yeah, I mean, he was somebody I met during the Hadestown Project, uh, Anais Mitchell's wonderful folk opera that she brilliantly constructed and brought Justin into and myself. And um, yeah, so this time out with this new record, uh, my strategy was just don't be alone. You have brilliant, beautiful friends, call them. And so that's what I started doing as I was, you know, making the recordings. I was just dreaming and scheming like, uh, you know, usually on many a record, I would have done uh, what was about to upcome there in the track was a chorus of Justin's voices that he added to the choruses of the songs of that song. Um and I just, I, I said, can you be a string section with your voice? Question mark. That's my only, that's it. That's all I'm telling you. And normally I would do that with myself, you know, my own, my little bullet mic, uh, you know, choruses have been on a lot of records. But once again, this time out, I was like, maybe I should just make a few calls, connect with some of my friends. And I'm so happy I did because they all brought their spirit to the record and it's so much better for it. I am very interested in the particular friends who have helped you along your road. I know that when I first encountered your music because um, when I was in high school my then girlfriend uh, now wife mm-hmm. definitely loved you more than me. <laughs> um, uh, I, the thing that struck me was like huh, she's friends with Prince, huh? <laughs> So how did you become friends with Prince? Prince was so cool. <laughs> I mean, how exactly? How does a little white girl from Buffalo get such vivid, brilliant company? Um, I mean, I guess maybe the connection point, he was struggling, you know, on on his label. Um Warner Brothers having a hard time with the old major label industry, feeling a bit chewed up and spit out. And he, you know, at that time I was sort of getting on the covers of magazines for Miss Righteous Babe. And he said in the media, our our conversation started in the media, really. He said in some interview, I want to be on Righteous Babe. (laughs) I believe that was the point where I wrote him a fax or something. I was like, call me. (laughs) You just mailed him a contract. Like, let's do this. Yeah, exactly. The contract says you can have whatever you want. You can get out whenever you want. That's what my contracts were like on Righteous Babe. It's nice to have an artist-run label, by the way, people. Um but um, then, I don't know, I showed up in Minneapolis one summer, and I had the wonderful Maceo Parker on tour with me, and we were doing shows out, and we were playing out in a ballpark in Minneapolis, and up drove this white limo, and there was a tizzy backstage, and everybody was like, honey, honey, come now, come now. And I go over in the window, 
and there he is <laughs> in like you know electric purple just lying prone on a white shag carpet in the bottom of this limo and it was just amazing he invited me to paisley park the next day to play on his record which was ridiculous and um that next day happened to be the 4th of July and next thing i knew we were up on his the roof of paisley park watching the fireworks and and then we had a jam session you know it was prince and larry graham and maceo parker <laughs> and me <laughs> it was like oh wow how does that happen i don't know i was just really fortunate to have been, you know, some kind of acquaintance to him and to have been in his company over the years. He was a really powerful spirit. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ani DeFranco. I like the idea of you, Prince Maceo, Maceo Parker, of course, legendary for having played in uh, both Parliament Funkadelic and the JBs. And Larry mm-hmm. Graham, uh, who played in both his band, Graham Central Station, and with Prince, and originally with Sly and the Family Stone, touring is like a funk package tour to, <laughs> you know. Oh, man. <laughs> Gosh. I'll, I'll sign like up. Like the Concord I'll Amphitheater. I'll sign up yesterday. Well, I'll tell you, just, I'll, I'll just, I, I don't, wouldn't usually do this, but it's just... It's one of my happiest little moments in my life when after that night was coming to a close and I was saying goodbye to Prince, I had showed up with like a four-string tenor guitar. Like you couldn't have a more yokel, like a folky yokel axe hanging off of me. And I'm in that company. And he was, you know, Prince was just kind of jamming around songs that ended up being, you know, the musicology tour. And he likes to do that kind of just woodshed songs and see what comes up and get ideas for the tour. And so we were jamming on that stuff. And I had my tenor twangy guitar. And I was just, you know, trying to to sit in there, you know, how whatever way that I could instinctually devise. And as we were parting company, I was like, you know, wow, what the heck? I can't believe I just with my stupid little guitar. And and Prince said to me, that was the funk. That was the funk you played. I was like, oh, sir, thank you, sir. (laughs) I'm glad I pleased you. (laughs) I got the nod. I got the nod that night from Prince. Well, Ani DeFranco, I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to me. It was really nice. It was really nice to meet you. Oh, Jesse, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Ani DeFranco from 2017. As we said before, she just announced a brand new record set to come out early next year. It's called Revolutionary Love. Let's listen to one more single from it. This is Do or Die. Do you ever just want to give up? Well, me too. People get, get used to You wake up in a cold sweat What that sign
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I am working on the puzzle. What do you serve for Thanksgiving when there will be a total of five people at the dinner table and three of them are under 10 and only eat cream cheese on rice cakes? The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. If you want to hear the latest about what we're up to, you can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all of those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.